Well, good morning, church. You know, I, I realized that uh, last week after I finished the sermon that we, we just had so much more in this passage that we needed to pull out of it because we really didn't have a chance to address the, the later verses in the text. We spent most of our time focused on, on, on Paul's arithmetic and his accounting because behind all of this, our question began with a question, what keeps Paul going? Why doesn't Paul stop? Why does he go back more for again and again and again, suffering trials and tribulations and suffering? Why does he keep doing it? And we see it here in Philippians. We see it. And it's something that we all need to grasp in our everyday Christian lives. But before we turn to the text this morning, I thought it would be helpful to set up the passage with a question and what is actually going to be an extended introduction. The question is this. What is the fundamental relationship between the law and the gospel? What's the fundamental relationship between the law and the gospel? How do they, how do they relate to one another? And I'm asking this because no matter how much we try to emphasize, and we need to emphasize God's grace in the gospel... We sing about it. We have verses we've memorized about it. We are masters, though, at smuggling in as Christians some form of try harder, do more law keeping into our salvation that we received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We are masters at smuggling in works. In fact, when we do this, which is incredibly easy, it's easy for us to do. We inadvertently turn the gospel into law. So what does it look like? Well, what does it look like in a church? It it can look like this. It can look like preaching and teaching principles for Christian living. It can look like teaching principles of Christian discipleship and even, yes, what we're talking about, suffering for the sake of Christ. It can look at te- like teaching those things in a way that compel us to look at and measure our doing. We're called to do these. They are things that God has laid upon us to follow, yet we can actually go about them in ways where we look at we go about them by measuring what we're doing instead of looking to Christ for the sufficiency in all things. We can miss the beauty and glory of Christ while we're focusing on measuring what we're actually doing. As Michael Horton warns in his book, Christless Christianity, he says this, we begin to speak about living the gospel, doing the gospel, and even being the gospel as if good news were a message about us and our works instead of Christ and his works. But the problem is, is that when it comes down to the question about how we relate to God, doing is always the wrong answer. And and it's not just some deeds on our part that are excluded. But our works of any kind. See, see the good news, the good news of the gospel is that even though you and I have not done the things that we know we should do, And that we have not even done the things that we have promised God that we would do. 
Christ has been made our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ is all. As Paul showed us last week, Philippians 3, starting in verse 8, he said, indeed, I count everything a loss. Why do I count it as a loss? Because of the surpassing worth. The worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I I count them as rubbish, I count them as dung, I count them as excrement, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. But just in case we think that the giving up and the forsaking of things and counting them as loss is the, is the means by which he receives Christ, he makes it clear that's not the case. Verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It doesn't come from my doing. It doesn't come from my obedience. No, it comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Everything that Paul's doing is anchored in what Christ has done, what he's received. He's been justified, credited with the infinite righteousness of Christ. He's not adding any righteousness to what Christ has done. But he's telling us Christ is worthy to be pursued. See, when it comes down to the the fundamental question, how do we relate to God? Doing is not the right answer. While on the one hand we can rightfully say and we need to be clear, the law does tell us how to live as Christians. How do I live a life that brings God glory? That is clearly laid down in his word. That is for us to pursue and it is for us to obey. But when it comes to how I relate to God, The gospel tells us to rely on what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Now you might be wondering why I'm spending all this time. Well, it's because these gospel truths need to be proclaimed over and over again because it's very easy for us to feel overwhelmed and ashamed of our Christian lives when we recognize the true scope of Paul's exhortation in these verses. You can actually come to this text, which is supposed to be of incredible encouragement, and leave feeling like you are the most pathetic, worthless Christian on the face of the planet. And that you need to now focus more on doing. I just need to do better. I need to try harder. Paul's saying... I want you to pursue Christ, but pursue him in a way where you're seeing his worth and his value. Not in a way that you're measuring up everything that you've sacrificed for him. The law is good. It exposes us to our desperate need for Christ. It guides us in our Christian life, but it can never, ever, in and of itself, provide us with the power we need for obedience. The law doesn't provide any power. So if Paul's fundamental message in these verses is not simply try harder, you stink as a Christian. If that's not the fundamental message, what is it? 
It's something like this. I think it's that a right standing before God frees us to find our highest joy and satisfaction in our passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us. If you really get what the gospel does, if you really get who Jesus is, it frees you. It's not binding you to a list of rules. It frees you to recognize how this world works and what really is the most important thing in life. To use the well-worn words of John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's what Paul's saying. See, it's only when we see our Christian life through this lens that we're able to discover the kind of joy that Paul is talking about this te- in this text. It's the only way we'll ever be able to consider everything in our life as rubbish and do it in a way where we're not buried under suffocating guilt and shame in our Christian lives. See, as we saw last week, the cost of following Jesus is incomparable to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. That's been the first half. So as we finally turn to our text this morning, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna skip all the way over verses one through eight. We're not gonna do a big, do a big review. I, I, I wanna press into verses nine through 10 and focus on three key questions that come out of these verses, and then we'll close up with some some implications for everyday life. The questions are this. What, what does it mean to know him, that is Jesus, and the power of his resurrection? What does it really mean? Second question, what, why, why, why does Paul want to share in the sufferings of Christ? Why? And number three, why does Paul appear to question his resurrection. So, three questions that come from verses 10 through 11, which we'll read right now. Paul says this, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I want to point out something like right out of the gate here that that is easy to overlook. And in fact, I was overlooking it until an author pointed me to it. So it's not even my discovery. It's this. These verses weren't penned by a baby Christian, but an apostle who's known Jesus for 30 years. 30 years he's known Jesus by the time he writes this book. He didn't come to faith yesterday. This is a man who's consumed with a burning passion for Jesus. 30 years as Christian. He says, I want to know Christ. And you're like, Paul, you already know Christ. Right? Normally, we'd be like, yeah, I know Christ. Paul covered that last week. He doesn't have a righteousness of his own, right? That he gains through the law. He gains it through faith in Christ. That's where he knew Christ to begin with. But he wants the rest of his life to be knowing Christ. I want to know him. 
I know him, but I want to know him more. See, he, he's telling us he wants to do anything in his power to know Jesus more and more and more in, in his life. I mean, I mean in, in human terms, if you really love somebody, you, you know them to at least some degree. And, 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 and over time, your love for that person makes you want to know them even more and more. You're like, you're like looking to remove any barriers it takes to know them more. Like, like in a marriage, much of marriage is even learning how to move those barriers out of the way that we grow in our love and affections for, not just in physical love, but truly knowing them. That's the kind of pursuit that Paul is talking about here. But the great thing when it comes to Jesus is unlike our marriages, which there is an end to in this life, there is literally no end to the delight and the joy that can be found in Jesus Christ. There's no end. There's always room for more knowing. And, it, and it's not like other relationships where you kind of hit this place where you know, there's just not as much return for the investment. No, never with Jesus. No, in fact, in fact, we will spend eternity still exploring the inexhaustible riches of knowing Christ better and better. So it's not even just in this life, but the, like once we come to faith in Christ, our entire existence is knowing Christ better. But as Paul waits for Christ's return, he wants us to see both his delight and his duty is focused on one thing, and it's knowing Christ better. But he knows something about the Christian life. That if he's actually going to have this pursuit, if this is really his goal, he actually needs a power outside of himself. He needs more than his willpower. He needs more than his desires. He needs more than his flesh. He needs the power of the resurrection. That's what, that's what Paul says. I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection. But, but it leads us to another question. Like, like, why does Paul list resurrecting power before death? Because if you, we follow through the text, he talks about knowing his power of his resurrection and being conformed to the likeness of Christ in his death after resurrection. Like, like wh- why does he reverse those? Well, it's because he wants us to recognize something about our new life in Christ. Whereas Jesus' death preceded his resurrection, Jesus died, was buried, and then was raised. What does our new life in Christ look like? Where do we begin? Do we begin alive? No, we begin dead. We are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were what in the trespasses and your sins? You were dead. You're dead. You didn't need a few more laws to follow. You didn't need a little spiritual reformation. You didn't need a little help from your friends. No, you're spiritually dead. Nothing to contribute. No way to please God. No inclination to even pursue him. Jumping down to verse 4. 
But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. That, that's the resurrecting power. That's where it begins. That's where it starts. He made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You have been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's why he's focused on the power of the resurrection. That is where our life begins as Christians, but it is only through that power in the rest of our life that we grow as Christians. See, in Paul's theology of the Christian life, this is incredibly important. If we were going to kind of mash a couple passages in his epistles together, we could say something like this. The incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead, that's Ephesians 1.19, is the power. It's the power that's at work in us to make us holy, to enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of God's love. That's later in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Continuing, what does it do to strengthen us so that we might have great endurance and faith in lives constantly characterized by joyful thanksgiving? Colossians 1, starting in verse 11. That's the power. The resurrecting power of Christ. Active in our regeneration, when we come to faith, we are raised from death to life. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. It's new. Because God has done the work. We've experienced the resurrecting power. It's there. So coming back, why does, he want to, why does he want to know the power of the resurrection? It's because he's saying, I don't have enough power. I don't have enough willpower. I don't have enough desire in my life as it is in my humanness to pursue sanctification, to pursue Jesus as my greatest treasure. I need an extraordinary power for that to happen. That's what he's saying. And it takes nothing less. Nothing less than the power that raised Jesus from the dead for me to grow as a Christian. That's what it takes for you and me to grow. God's active, resurrecting power at work in your life and in my life. That's what it takes. See, this is important. It helps us see at least three things. There's some ways we can get off track when it comes to this life as a Christian. Number one, we need to realize we are not copying a dead model. We are not called to grind out our Savior's command to take up our cross and follow him in our flesh can't do it, not going to happen. Jesus didn't come merely as a model to be followed. And his commands to us, every command ever given is never to be carried out in the power of our flesh. Now in every step of our Christian life, we are walking in fellowship with the very person who said, I'm never going to leave you, I'm never going to forsake you. And we know that because he gave us his Holy Spirit. 
There's not a Christian on the planet who doesn't have the power to pursue Jesus Christ. Second thing we see is that every effort we ever expend, any effort, every sacrifice that we ever, ever choose to lay on the altar, any degree to which we ever truly grow in his likeness by overcoming sin in our life, is never a testimony to our works, but a testimony to his grace. This is important when we talk about works, when we talk about measuring, when we talk about merit. There are countless things that I guess, I'm I'm, I'm sure, every person in here has given up in their pursuit of Christ. There are ways that you have fought against sin. You can look back and say, there are areas of victory in my life, areas of service that you sacrificed for. They're not merit but they're evidence of God's grace in his work. Earlier in the book of Philippians at the end of chapter one, Paul tells this church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it. Fear and trembling. But then he goes on to say, for it is God who works in you to both will and to do his good pleasure. Never alone. Never isolated. Never in your power. It requires effort on our behalf, yes, but the victory is in his hands. Which brings us to the third point. The primary way that we grow in our relationship and our intimacy and our delight in Christ is through our sanctification. Do you want to grow closer in intimacy? Grow in holiness. Do you want to grow deeper in your love for Christ? Grow in obedience. Because in sanctification, it's that, it's that, it's that, it's that, Development in our life where we're actually being conformed to the likeness of Christ. We're actually becoming righteous by degree. See, sanctification and justification are two different things. Justification, instantly declared righteous, instantly credited with the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ that can never be depleted. That is the grounds of my forgiveness and my restoration to God. But the problem is, is when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm a wreck. And so are you. I got all sorts of mess in my life. I am not very righteous at all. Declared righteous, life of sanctification, overcoming sin, growing in righteousness by degree, by the power of God. And as that happens, I'm starting to delight in the things that Jesus delights in. So see, see, the pursuit of sanctification is, is not to earn God's favor. It's 
It's not about earning his favor so that we're going to get more out of him. It's about finding things that are truly satisfying. We were created to live in a certain way. We were created to find our highest joys in everything that God ordains is right. And as we grow in that, we discover something brand new. Holiness isn't a drag. Jesus is satisfying. Psalm 37, verse 4, David says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, sometimes when I hear people talk about this, they, take, they, 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 they cut the verse in half, and they think the desires in your heart is anything that you desire, God will give you, if you just would simply delight in him. So the payment for receiving whatever you desire in your heart is to somehow be desiring God. But that's not what the verse says. Delight yourself in the Lord. If I'm delighting in the Lord, what are the desires of my heart? The Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. He's giving you more of himself. That's the call that David is laying out. See, friends, this is where the rubber meets the road in our spiritual life. If the desires of our heart are set on sinful things, or or even if the desires of our heart are set on the things of this world more than Christ, we are going to struggle to delight in the Lord. And if we're not delighting him, if we're not, apart from a supernatural work of undeserved grace, we will not enjoy him and we will not pursue him as we ought. See, our, 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 our heart is ruled by a very simple law. We do what we do because we want what we want because we love what we love. What's ruling the loves of your heart? See, that, that's, that's getting to the heart of what Paul was talking about last week, counting all things loss for the sake of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Circling back to Paul even. Wrestling with that question that we began last week. Why doesn't Paul give in to self-pity? Why doesn't Paul give in to anger? Why doesn't Paul fall into this black pit of depression after everything that he goes through? Why doesn't he just retire from ministry when he gets back from a second missionary journey? Take up a position teaching in a school somewhere. It's because he endures everything he does for the sake of the gospel. He loves Jesus Christ in a way that's just mind-boggling in my humanness. I read Paul. I understand his argument. And why did I open up with a section on law and gospel? Because I think it's easy, easier for me to fall to that side than the side that Paul is on. Just imagine delight. 
joy being the motivator. That's, that's Paul's motive. And, and it's what, what, what compels him to unflinchingly declare that he wants to share in the sufferings of Christ. He wants to share in the sufferings of Christ. He has one great passion. He's being sanctified and he's being sustained by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the only thing that keeps him going. But that brings us to the second question we have. Why, why does Paul want to share in the sufferings of Christ? I mean, I don't really like suffering. I don't. But now that we have a better grasp of his motives and desires, I think we're able to see here that, 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 that Paul wants to share in the sufferings of Christ that is, that is, experience the same kind of sufferings that Jesus endured, it's so that he might know Christ better. Remember, that's where it began. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings. It's still about knowing Christ. And by suffering here, he's, he's not talking about things like cancer, He's not talking about automobile accidents. He's not talking about difficult family relationships. No, no, no. By suffering, in this instance, he's talking about being rejected and discriminated against and actively persecuted for his determined public commitment to Jesus Christ. That, that's the suffering in this text. It's kind of suffering that, that got him thrown out of multiple synagogues. His brothers and sisters in, in, in the flesh, Jews throwing him out, rejecting him to his face, calling him a blasphemer, chasing him from town to town every time they heard he starts to get traction. Being drugged through the streets by Gentiles beaten with rods, thrown into prison. First missionary journey in Lystra, being stoned, left for dead. The sufferings of Christ. That's the suffering. Yet in this, Paul does not want to suffer simply because he wants to suffer. It's not like suffering gives Paul some sort of perverted joy. He doesn't want to suffer because he views it as some sort of redemptive penance or merit in, in, in God's eyes. That's not what the text says, no. No, Paul views the sufferings here, number one, as a natural result of being identified with Christ and the necessary means by which he's actually going to find greater joy in Jesus. That's what he sees. Paul's pursuing joy in Jesus Christ. See, to put it in terms of Jesus' call to discipleship in Mark chapter 8, Paul is saying, I want to do one great thing in this life. I want to do one great thing. I want to take up my cross and I want to follow Jesus in any and every way possible. 
I mean, in in saying, I want to suffer, I want to participate in his sufferings, he's he's just proclaiming the very willingness to do what Christ has called all of his disciples to do. He's saying no suffering is too great if it's for Christ because it gives me the privilege of honoring and knowing and enjoying Jesus Christ as my greatest treasure. That's why he doesn't quit. That's why he doesn't just stop. So let's just pause here for a minute. I just want to make make it clear. Paul is not advocating any sort of legalistic, try harder, do more, shame-based approach to the Christian life. He's not shaming anybody in here. He's not pumping law. He's proclaiming the gospel. A gospel that, what does the gospel do? The gospel is beckoning us to abandon our constant pursuit of gain in, in, in everything in this world that's not going to last. That's what the gospel's doing. It's, it's, saying, it's saying, don't pursue the things that aren't going to last. But do it for a purpose so that you can find pleasure and satisfaction that can never be diminished, that can never be taken away. As you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the heart. See, if we use Paul's logic in this passage... We can ask the question, what, what, what keeps me as your pastor and what keeps you from truly knowing and enjoying Christ? I mean, just being a pastor for 25 plus years, I've talked to plenty of Christians who they would say, I do all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm going to church, I'm serving, I'm doing this, but I don't have any joy in my Christian life. What keeps us from that? Well, according to this passage, it's our sinful propensity to pursue and to cling to temporary joys, to cling to temporary pleasures, to be focused on our personal achievements in this life as gain. We're, 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 we're trying to chalk up all the gain we can in this life. And there's lots of great and good things in this life. We talked about it last week already. There's good things. There's gifts from God. But we cling to them. That, that's the key. It's the clinging. And the pursuit of them as our highest joy and treasure. What do they do? They impede our pursuit and our enjoyment of Jesus Christ. And if we're, if we're honest as we're talking about suffering, we can be pretty honest that, you know, we rarely ever have to suffer for Christ. But when suffering for Christ does come, we can find encouragement, we can find hope in the promise that even in our suffering for Christ, and even if it costs us everything, including this life, our knowing 
does not end in this life, does it? Our experience and our joy of Christ doesn't end in this life. No, no, it, it continues. And it continues in a far better way than it does in this life. Which is again why Paul says also in the book of Philippians, like, like, hey guys, I think it'd be much greater if I could die right now and be with Jesus. But I'm not going to because I think that he wants me to serve you right now. He wants me to pour my life into you for your joy. So that's what I'm going to do. So he knows there's even more with the resurrection. Our pursuit of Christ and joy in him never ends. So let's touch on this question. What does it mean? Why, or why, does, why does Paul appear to kind of question his resurrection? He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead in verse 11. What's going on with this? Well, after reading broadly on this question this week, I won't regurgitate everything I read for you. How about down to the punchline? To quote D.A. Carson, the word somehow here in the original Greek, in verse 11, suggests that Paul, he's not, he suggests, pardon me, that Paul is uncertain as to the timing and the circumstances of the resurrection, not his experience of the resurrection. So, so he's saying, he's saying like, like, uh, like it's going to happen. I just don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, might it come in my lifetime that I, uh, that I receive a transformed body in this life? Like I'm going to be alive. Jesus is going to return. I'm going to be resurrected in glory. Or, or am I going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead? I don't know, but somehow, <laughs> one way or the other, I'm going to attain the resurrection of the dead. It's not a question. He's not concerned he's going to derail See, in Paul's mind, attaining that, one, attaining that one glorious end, the final resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth is the ultimate end to which his pursuit is directed. He's settled. He's, he knows. Here he knows he's been found righteous in Christ. And that's why he's pursuing Jesus at any cost. Because he knows one day he will see him face to face in glory as he truly is. 1 John chapter 3, starting verse 2. John tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're going to see him. See, when it comes down to it, I think, I think that in these, these three verses we're looking at today, I, I might summarize Paul's main point in, as this. Suffering for Jesus is temporary, but pleasure in Jesus is eternal. Suffering for Jesus is temporary, but pleasure in Jesus is eternal. Or if we link it up with last week to to kind of like give us a main idea for this entire section, we could summarize it like this. The cost of following Christ is incomparable to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord because suffering for Jesus is temporary, but pleasure in Jesus is eternal. Just taking last week and this week and bringing them right together. 
That's what these verses are telling us. So let, let, let's try to put these to use in our everyday life a little bit. we can just got a few minutes. But how about some implications for everyday life? We've covered a lot of ground. So, so number one, I want, I want to come back to a question I raised earlier because it's important for us to understand about how suffering in the Christian life works. And, and, and the question kind of is like this, is if, if suffering that Paul is talking about in this passage is primarily directed towards our rejection and our discrimination and our outright persecution that we face for the sake of Christ, which is what it is. That's what the suffering is that he's focused on here. What about the other kind of suffering we endure in life? I mean, it's, if we're talking about suffering, let's at least touch on all the other kinds of suffering that we can engage in our lives. Do we have any promises that they have a redemptive purpose in our life? Do we have any promise that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to us in these other things? Like we raised, like cancer, car wrecks, relationships in our family or others. Do we have promises? And we do. I'm going to grab just one text out of a number. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why is all this going to happen? Paul's not just saying everything works out in the end. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's going to work out for Christians because why? God has poured his love into our heart. That is the Holy Spirit, the active power. He's given it to us. Why is that suffering going to produce endurance instead of destruction? Because of the Holy Spirit's work. I just want to highlight that because as we talk about suffering for Christ, let's, let's take a minute just to bring in all kinds of suffering so that we know we have promises as Christians in the face of any kind of suffering we could ever possibly endure in life. There is not a category that is left out. They're there. And we're promised that God is always actively working. Second way I'd like to apply this morning is to wrestle with the fact that when we talk about suffering for Christ, it can be hard as American Christians. Like, like, like how do we apply a passage about suffering for Christ to our everyday life as Christians? We don't live in North Korea. We don't live in Iran. We don't live in China. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that nobody is really worried today when you came to church that the secret police were going to bust in through the door. Right? I'm pretty sure that nobody's worried that your house is going to be firebombed tonight. Pretty sure? I'm pretty sure that at least for most of you, you're not worried that you're going to lose your job for no other reason that you are a Christian. 
I mean, that, that, is, that is the real predicament that countless Christians face in this world today. So as we look at applying this today, I'd like to actually expand our view. We're going we're to go from kind of a narrow lens to a wide-angle lens. I, w- I want to tie in Paul's primary exhortation that we looked at last week. Well, what is the primary exhortation? It's to abandon anything that hinders our pursuit of Jesus Christ or prevents us from enjoying him as our greatest treasure. That was the exhortation from last week. Suffering is a subset of that. It's a subcategory. It's a subcategory of everything. So anything that hinders our pursuit of Christ, set it aside. In light of this, I think it's important to ask the question. This is really getting down to brass tacks for us. What is preventing you today? What is preventing you today from knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ? We're thinking in categories of things that we're clinging to. We're holding on to gain. We're unwilling to let go of. What's preventing you from knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ or helping other people find their highest joy in him? What's the gain? What are you unwilling to sacrifice? Write it down on your paper. Write it down in the margin of your Bible. There are things that get in the way. And for everybody, it's something different. See, for, the, for some people, it might be the cost of publicly identifying with Jesus Christ in the workplace. Because in it, you're risking the chance, especially in our culture today, where, where you're going to be forever known as one of those bigoted Jesus followers instead of being a dedicated employee or a leader who's committed to quality work. I mean, in the workplace, we want to be known for what we do. We want to be known that we're quality employees or leaders. There's a category we haven't raised when it comes to abandoning everything and counting it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Sometimes the gain that you're holding on to or that we hold on to is secret sin. We have sin that we hold on to and it needs to be brought into the light of the gospel so that it can be exposed and that it can be overcome. We think we have gain. But see, it's impossible. It's impossible to truly enjoy Christ when you are secretly treasuring sin. No man, no woman can serve two masters. You're going to hate the one and love the other. Secret sin. For others, when it comes to gain, things that get in the way. It might be things that are good and holy gifts from God that we're unwilling to lay aside. We talked about this a little bit last week. When Paul says everything, he means everything. 
things that we might need to lay aside for our pursuit. It could be something like the weekly rhythms of our family life. Every one of us has, has kind of that rhythm of family life. We, we do what we do, it fits us well, but, but maybe that needs to be interrupted. Maybe that needs to be changed and challenged. For those of you in the workplace, maybe it's your steady progress up the ladder of employment. Sometimes it's the pursuit of, of making that next step that's in the way. And that instead of pursuing that, there's a greater pursuit that needs to be made. In fact, many times, I'm not, this isn't true of everybody, but there are times when those who are pursuing their way up the ladder are actually doing it at the ex- very expense of their pursuit of Jesus Christ. So busy in work and everything else that's going on, there is no time for Jesus. It could be your views about financial security, how that gets worked out, or it just simply could be how you view and cherish your free time. Our culture loves its free time, and we work hard to protect it. See, those are good things. In and of themselves, not sin. But they may be things that need to be laid aside. So the question is, what is it? Well, what's impeding your ever-increasing intimacy and your enjoyment of Jesus Christ? Because that's what it's at stake. Again, why did I start with law and gospel? I want you to see all this is in pursuit of actually enjoying something more than you are actually enjoying. Having a Christian life that is so much more than whatever your Christian life is right now. It's there and it can be had. See, whatever it is, no matter what it promises and what you hope to gain from it, it's never going to measure up to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wants us to see in the text. The cost of following Christ is incomparable to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ because suffering for Jesus is temporary. But pleasure in Jesus is eternal. Let's close with a word of prayer.